Hey, have you uh, ever changed a flat tire while you're going 50 miles an hour? <laughs> Paul and I did that during worship. The battery on my guitar died. And, uh, you know, if you're ever in a foxhole, you want Paul Marini in there with you. He's got his mother's MacGyver gene. Well, it is such a great uh, joy for me to stand before you this morning and to share about this trip. And unbeknownst to me, uh, when we came back and we were talking with Pastor Vince about doing a report for the church, I didn't realize, and they never told me, that Dan and Eva are actually at a conference for Elam. You remember Joe Connor spoke to you a couple months ago? And they do a visioning conference every year out in the Southwest, and Dan and Eva are there. So I think they might be on uh, f- Facebook but, uh, yeah, so they're not here, but I'll speak on their behalf. Um, as I've all often done when we've come back from these mission trips, I, I usually just prepare a short film to just kind of give you a smattering of what we experienced there. And a lot of the things you'll see in the film will become more clear to you when we go through the presentation. But one thing you'll see in there is you'll see some ruins that we're at. And the ancient city of Carthage is right attached right next to Tunis. And we went there for about an hour one day. And what we're standing in that you'll see in the video is a coliseum. I don't know how many of you saw the movie Gladiator. And when they were doing the, the battlefield, the battles with the gladiators and the animals out in North Africa, well, this was one of those stops. And Christians were martyred in that coliseum. And you see, you'll see a trench down the middle, and that's where the lions came out. And you'll see gates where the Christians were brought in. And they were, of course, uh, martyred with lions and gladiators. And so you'll see that in the video. Um, I, I found just the perfect soundtrack for this video. I hope you enjoy it. I have to say, um, when we left there, we literally were weeping. Because when you see the Spirit of God in people that you would not expect to be uh, Christian or, or that are so different than you are, it just fortifies your faith so greatly because you, you just see this is so real. God is so real. And the things that he does in a person on the other side of the world are the things that he did in you. And when you see it face to face, they fell in love with us. We fell in love with them. We want to go back soon. But that's another story. Let's start with... Um, the demographics of the place we were at. This is Tunisia. It's in North Africa. And uh, it is a place of about 12 million people. I think officially it's like 11.9 million people. 99% of this population are Sunni Muslim. Uh, Although it is not the most uh, fundamentalistly Muslim nation, it's a little more secular in the way the the nation operates, but 99% of the people in that nation identify with Islam. And of the other 1%, that 1% is made up of a number of different religions. There's actually a Jewish community there of a couple thousand people. Uh, There is a, uh, it may not be quite that much, maybe a thousand people. There are some Shia Muslims. There is a a Baha'i faith uh, group that's there. And then there are about uh, 80,000 people who would identify as Christians or thereabouts um, and 80% of those are are Catholics, mostly foreigners from Europe. Of that 1%, only it's estimated between 2,000 and 5,000 people are evangelical Christians, sprinkled about. Uh, 
And they live under a regime that uh, since 2015 has been pretty oppressive. The president there has pretty much disbanded the Supreme Court, has, has excused the prime minister, has uh, basically uh, usurped the power of the legislature, and has declared a state of emergency since 2015, which gives the police uh, much more sweep, broad sweeping powers to investigate anything that might be a threat to the regime. We went there with these objectives. Uh, first of all, we wanted to encourage the Tunisian church. Now, by the way, I didn't recognize all of the aspects of the demographics and the lay of the land until Kareem, our partner from Advancing Native Missions, proposed this trip. And uh, I started really looking into the country and was wondering, wow, how does the church operate in a, in a place like that? And so, obviously, we wanted to go and encourage the church as best we could. Uh, secondly, we wanted to uh, develop relationships with the church leaders because we don't consider this a one-off. Kareem goes through there a couple times a year, and we want to help and assist him in every way that we can. Um, and then the main event, so to speak, was we wanted to teach them and in seeking out the Holy Spirit, uh, the, the Spirit led us to three basic tracks of teaching that we would provide to them. The first being uh, theological foundations. You see, as you're going to see in a moment, there aren't Bible colleges there. There aren't seminaries. A lot of the people who, who bring together the church leaders, uh, they are people who have great enthusiasm for the Lord. They've read the Bible on their own, but they don't have deep teaching in the foundations of the faith. And so... We thought we would bring that to them. Kareem asked me specifically to do a track on Christian living and ministry uh, because there are a lot of different dynamics in the, within the family unit in a Muslim culture that's very different from the kind of culture that you and I have grown up in, especially the relationship between husband and wife. And so that was going to be a big one as well. And then finally, a track on eschatology and, and to bring to them kind of an overview, a digestible view of the end times. Now, between those three tracks, I sent to them 13 different Bible studies, the outlines, which they then translated to be used. I held back one. I, I, I told Kareem I had it. But it was the presentation that I did on that Wednesday night, I think it was December the 6th, when we had that conference on Israel. And the portion that I did addressed some topics about, does Israel have a right to exist? Do the Jewish people have a right to the land? Why are they God's chosen people? Why does the world hate them? And I, I, I had a burden in my heart that the people that live in that part of the world who name the name of Christ as their Lord and Savior, they should know the answers to those questions. But I didn't want to send that over there as like a, you know, a landmine that could blow up on us. And I didn't want that to be distributed unless we had from them an assent to actually hear it. So I held that one back. Uh, our ministry team, you see right here on the left side of that photograph is Dan and Eva, my beloved brother and sister. They are Aquila and Priscilla of uh, the, the first century church. Um, the woman standing to uh, the right side of Eva, I'll describe her later. Her name is Dijla. By the way, Dijla is the Arabic rendering of the name Tigris, as in the Tigris River. And she is a Tigris indeed. I'm going to explain her role there. And then you see Kareem in the blue shirt uh, towards the back. Kareem is the Apostle Paul. 
in the analogy of the first century church, in the sense that he travels across Middle East and Africa, encouraging the churches, providing teaching, providing instruction, providing discipline. And he, being a a long-term friend of Dan and Eva, has brought this church into that part of the world. I'll speak more about that later. That's his wife next to him, Ilham. She also goes by the name Lydia. And then yours truly is standing there as well. Before I go another minute further into this presentation, I want to thank you for your prayers. I want you to understand that maybe I'm giving you the report on this trip because Stan, Eva, and I were there. But this whole church was there. Please understand, I don't mean that uh, as a patronizing comment because you guys were here and we were there. No, your prayers, your funding made this possible. Your prayers were answered in so many ways. We had the peace of God approaching the trip on the way there, while we were there, and the only thing we suffered on the way back was heartache because we were going to leave these people. What you prayed for came to pass. There are so many answers to prayer, but i got to bring up two of them to you. Uh, one of which I, I just chuckle about every time I think about it. Okay, so I left Raleigh at about uh, in the afternoon of that Wednesday, the 7th of February. And the only connection I had that I was nervous about was actually the first one, getting to Boston and then getting onto the plane that would take me to Charles de Gaulle in Paris and then on, on my way. And it was a tight connection. And you know how it is these days in airports where planes get held up on the runway and ours was being held up on the runway. And I checked on my app, the, the terminal maps, and my terminal to leave for Charles de Gaulle is literally a mile away from where I'm going to land. And, and I, I, I know I'm going to have to go through another, um, another security check once I get in the terminal. And I'm panicking about this. And, and we're standing up. I'm about halfway back in a pretty big plane. So I'm waiting for all the people in front of me. And I'm praying, Lord, please protect my testimony. Lord, please protect my testimony. <laughs> Don't let me say anything. Don't let me do anything. Just let me be calm. All of a sudden, I hear my name over the public address system of the airplane. Uh, This message is for David Marini. We want you to know that as you step off the plane, there'll be a woman waiting for you on the jetway. She will take you to your terminal. I thought, wow, that's interesting. (laughs) Well, as it turns out, see, years ago, I flew all over the world constantly for, for years and years and years. So I'm what you call a million miler on Delta. In fact, I have 1.3 million miles flown with Delta over the course of my life. And this nice woman is standing there with a big smile on her face. She's got my name on a placard and she says, hi, my name is, uh, I think her name was uh, Laura. And I'm here to take you directly to your gate. I said, really? Uh, Great, why? She said, well, we want, Delta wants to show exceptional service and attention to our loyal customers. (laughs) So she takes me right down the stairs from the jetway And parked right by the plane, that is a Porsche SUV. (laughs) It's not enough that she would, I would have been happy with a Honda Civic. Frankly, I would have been happy with a bicycle. But there is this Porsche SUV. She takes me right to my gate. I go upstairs from the tarmac. Boom, I'm at the gate. And I'm just saying, thank you, Jesus. (laughs) Exceedingly, abundantly, more than you could ever think or ask. The uh, The other prayer that was answered was the Lord warning of a change of venue. We had scheduled this meeting to take place 
in the conference room of what is known as an NGO, non-governmental organization. And there are certain non-governmental organizations that can have a religious affiliation as long as they're doing uh, good works among the population. And this was one of those places. And one of the church leaders there, he, uh, he had arranged that the, we could meet in that conference room. We had been warned in advance of this trip, don't post anything on Facebook, don't put anything on the internet, on and on and on, only to find out that somebody in Tunisia posted on Facebook, hey, there's going to be a church leaders conference at such and such a conference room being led by an American pastor. Lo and behold, the police called that guy that had arranged it at that conference room. They told him to come down to speak to them. They confiscated his laptop. The email that I had sent to, to Kareem with all of the outline of the things I proposed to teach, he forwarded to that guy. So that's on his laptop. My name is on that. And so immediately we changed the venue of the meeting to the home of a lady that you'll see in the presentation. And, and we went on from there without any trouble. Now, I have to tell you, I've done a lot of these conferences in India with Dan and Eva, and, and, and they always had a similar formula. We'd have a big old room. There'd be a, scores of pastors, men leading churches, churches that are physically located in villages, some of which I have personally uh, visited, gone into, met the people, met the pastors, and all that. That's the concept I had in my mind, okay? God gave me three, gave us three, what I call God surprises, okay? The first God surprise is the Tunisian church. That is those 2,000 evangelicals there in that country out of 12 million. It's not the kind of church that you see here. It's not the church that we see in India. It's not the church I have seen anywhere else in the world. This is a first century church. There are no established church buildings on streets. There isn't a phalanx of pastors that are all going out to their individual flocks, shepherding those flocks. There aren't uh, seminaries and Bible colleges where people who desire to preach the word of God can go and be trained. The primary venues of the church in Tunisia are people's homes. And the astounding thing is they don't even know where other Christians are in some cases. They don't even, there are no opportunities to gather together. Like we have pastor conferences over here in the States. We have marriage conferences. We have times when people from different churches gather together to encourage one another, to learn from one another. That doesn't exist there. It doesn't exist. Okay. And second God surprise, and this was one that I initially had the hardest time with until I read, I went back and read the Bible. Okay, the second God surprise is that many of the church leaders are women. Meet Dishla. She's over here on the left, uh, standing there with Dan and Eva. And Fatten, she is on the right side of the other picture on this screen. She, by the way, was the one whose home she opened up so that we could have the meeting in her home. Now, I. This troubles me. I know that women in ministry, uh, teaching ministry, is a, is a contentious issue within the church. And we look at the pastoral epistles of Paul. And in those pastoral epistles, we see very clearly, he says, I do not permit a woman to teach the congregation. However, 
if you, I went back to the book of Acts because I wanted to understand, okay, well, what, what exactly was the first, church, first century church like? Because this was that, okay? This was not church as we know it. It wasn't this, okay? It is pretty much people who have given their lives to Christ and are, we pray about God, please build on the prosperity that I have. Lord, please extend my good health. Lord, please let me have the job that I need to keep the beautiful home that you've blessed me with. Those are the kind of prayers we pray. They pray, Lord, let me be here for your glory another day. And so it's a whole different environment. Now, I said uh, this woman, Dishla, was somebody that, uh, that was unusual. She is a tour de force. This woman is, if, if, if the church in Tunisia is like a wagon wheel, she's the hub. She's, her phone is constantly ringing. Her house, her house is a safe house. And so any Christian that's in need or whatever, if there's space, they're in there. The house is falling down all around them. She sleeps in one room. Her husband sleeps on a, on a mat in, in a, one of the little rooms in the house just so that they can accommodate people. She provides for the needs of people. She steers them into the way of the Bible. And I asked myself, well, where do we see this in, in Scripture? And what we find in uh, Acts chapter 16, we meet a woman named Lydia. Verse 11 of chapter 16 of Acts, we read, Therefore, sailing from Troas, this is Paul. Now, he's received the Macedonian call. He wanted to head to Asia Minor. The Lord said, ah, no, I have a mission for you. Head towards Europe. So he goes towards Macedonia. Sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace. And then the next day, we came to Neapolis. And from there to Philippi, which is, in the, foremost, uh, is the foremost city of the part, that part of Macedonia, a colony. And we, st- we were staying in that city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was c- customarily made. And we sat down and spoke to the woman who we met there. Now, a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized... She begged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And so she persuaded us. Now, this woman is in a very nascent development of the church in Philippi. She's not from Philippi. She's there doing business. She was a seller of purple dye, which was a luxury item of the time. So she was probably a woman of means. So we can presume that she ultimately went back to Thyatira. Well, the interesting thing is there's nowhere in the book of Acts or anywhere else in the New Testament of Peter, Paul, John, any of the apostles going to Thyatira and planting a church. But there in Revelation chapter 2, Thyatira is one of the churches that the Lord uh, wrote a letter to. It would be a safe assumption, I think, to think that Lydia had an awful lot to do with bringing the gospel back to her town so that a church could be established there. Now, if you read that letter to the church of Thyatira, some bad things went on there, and, and it's put at the feet of a woman that John uses the term Jezebel on. I don't believe, by the way, that's Lydia, because that happens like 55 years after Paul meeting her there. 
And so we don't know what kind of perversion happened later. But the point is that this was a woman that God raised up because she was a ready, willing, and prepared vessel to go to bring the gospel there. And this is the way in which I see Dishla's role there. She is somebody that God has raised up because he knows her unique gifting. And believe me, she is a tour de force. She, she doesn't speak English. I speak a little bit of French. She speaks French. She speaks Arabic. But I always asked her to pray before sessions. Even that I didn't understand a word, I could feel the power of her prayers. And, and she's also like Priscilla in the book of Acts. Acts chapter, uh, I'm sorry, my eyes are failing me. 18 verse 26 Am I seeing that right? No, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, Acts 18, 26. She, well, along with her husband, was the one that helped Apollos, a gifted and articulate teacher of the word of God, to go beyond what he knew. He knew the baptism of John. He didn't know about the giving of the Holy Spirit. He didn't know about the significance of the resurrection of Christ. Priscilla was one of those who helped him learn the rest of the story. And she and her husband are commended by Paul in the book of Romans, uh, at the end of the book of Romans, as being co-laborers, important people to him in his ministry. So this was something I had to settle in with because every one of the people you see in that room, it looks like men, but also a lot of women, every one of those has a ministry as a church leader. What is their, what is their ministry? Each one has a, like a little cell of 10 people that they're pouring into. That they're, that they're leading further into the faith. That's there. That's what it was like in the first century. God's surprise number three. And this is, the, this is another one. This is another one I had a hard time with, okay? We're going through the room and we're asking about their testimonies. And probably half the room, at least the ones that spoke up, are telling us that what led them to Christ was what they saw in a dream. They saw, in almost every case, what they saw was the risen Christ. They knew it was the risen Christ because evident in what they, what they saw as the image of, of this man, first of all, he had a shining appearance. Second of all, they could see the wounds in his hands and his feet. And again, this troubles me because in the, in the United States of America, people come to faith by witnessing, by people coming and bringing them the gospel, by people showing them the love of Jesus Christ, by people uh, on every street corner. In fact, the, the unbeliever's greatest challenge is not that they'll ever hear from the Lord, it's that they want to shut up all these people that get in their face and share the word of God. Thank you very much, every one of you, for being part of that group, by the way. And this place here in the United States of America is not there. There are none of those people doing that. Like I said before, a lot of the Christians don't even know who else is Christian in their area. And the Lord, in a time when that was true back in history, used the same kind of vehicle to get people pointed towards the Lord. Now, let me emphasize, nobody that I talked to there based their salvation solely on a dream. In every case, the dream is what drove them to the Bible and drove them to find a Christian to help them understand what they were reading. Now, has the Lord ever done this? Well, we know that Paul and Ananias in chapter 9 of Acts came together because here's Paul. He's been blinded by the vision of the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. 
and the Lord takes his physical sight from him that he might just be able to contemplate, or to use uh, Vince's word, ponder exactly what has happened here and what's the meaning of it. At the same time, he gives a vision to Ananias, a Christian in the city of Damascus, who says, I need you to go to the Apostle Paul to restore his sight. And Ananias is saying, uh, Lord, just one little footnote. Uh, he kills Christians <laughs> and jails them. The Lord said, yeah, 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 go. At the same time, he's telling Paul, a man is going to come and he is going to speak to you. And in the process of that, Paul's salvation is consummated. Cornelius and Peter in Acts chapter 10. Cornelius is getting a dream saying, you need to send men to a man you'll find in the city of Jaffa. And he's telling Paul, or Peter, that, um, that men are at the door and they are coming here to help you uh, go to a place that I'll show you that you might preach the gospel to a household of Gentiles. And through that dream and vision, Paul and Cornelius meet. And here we have the opening of the door to the gospel coming to the Gentile world. Not a way that, that it could happen almost any other way in that setting. And then, of course, we have the Macedonian call. We were just in Acts chapter 16. And this is when uh, Lydia, the woman I referred to earlier, was actually saved. Paul was heading in a different direction. He was heading to, to Asia Minor. The Lord says, no, I have another place for you to be for salvation to be opened up to another region of the world. And this is, this is um, the way it's working there. The same conditions exist in Tunisia today. The disconnectedness of where the gospel resides right now in that country means that the Lord needs to use another way. And this is something that uh, is happening throughout the Middle East. And I want to share with you uh, two instances of this that are in the, in the Christian press right now as we speak. One of the places that you've probably heard about is in the country of Iran. In the country of Iran, people all over that nation are seeing visions and dreams of the risen Christ. It's because... It is not open for people like you and me to go around and to share the gospel on the street corners or go into homes and like that. So the Lord needs to prove out. See, see, we get the reality of Jesus Christ and what we see in the saints. This is what John the Apostle wrote about, is that the world will know that Jesus exists because of the love that we have for one another. You can't see that throughout the Middle East and Africa. The church is too fragmented, it's too scattered, it's too small. There isn't that critical mass. And so in an article that was published in CBN uh, a year ago now, we read, the founder of a ministry devoted to serving the Iranian underground, it's ironic, Dan and Eva are there uh, with Elam talking about this very thing. The underground church said, many people in the restrictive nation have encountered Jesus through dreams and visions a phenomenon that, potentially, that is potentially foreign to Western cultures. Yeah. Reverend Lazarus Yegazar, founder of Transform Iran, an organization preaching the gospel to Iran and planting churches, told CBN's Faithwire, many Iranians find themselves enraptured by Christ following these apparitions. They cannot stop talking about it. Hence the severe persecution, the severity and the brutality. 
Believers, uh, believers, Iranian believers say, I saw a vision of a man with a white robe with a cross on his shoulder or on his heart. And he says, I am Jesus. While many believers in the West might meet Jesus as a result of others sharing the gospel, dreams and visions are sometimes the touch points, uh, the touch points in Iran that spark life changing and heart transformation. Uh, This pastor pointed to scripture to show how God has used visions to communicate with humanity in the past and explain why Iranians might be having this uh, this spiritual experience today. Then, and this is uh, stories that I think you've heard as well, in Palestine, in in the Gaza Strip. This article, over the past two days, these are ministers that are reporting, over the past two days, we have ministered to hundreds of fathers who have lost most, if not all, of their children in the war between uh, Israel and and Gaza. As we moved these men to safety, we fed them, washed their clothes, and began to read the Bible to them, sharing the way of peace through Jesus. Then a big miracle happened. Last night, Jesus appeared to more than 200 of them in their dreams. They have come back to us to learn more from God's word and are asking how to follow Jesus. Now understand, the dreams don't save them. The dreams just arrange the meeting. And this is happening throughout the Middle East and Africa. And this is something we experience directly in Tunisia. I want you to meet Najet and her children. Najet is second from the left, that short woman in the, in the orange outfit. And that's her daughter, Asma and her sons, Sammy and Osama. This family was was Muslim, and they were radically so. Najat and her husband went with their daughter. The sons apparently remained back in Tunisia, but the daughter and mom and dad, they went to Libya for Najat's husband's business. While they were there, they were radicalized. They literally attached themselves to ISIS. And uh, the only reason why Najet and her daughter left the husband in, in Libya was because he was trying to force them to uh, belly dance, to des- dance uh, suggestively in front of the, these ISIS uh, warriors. And they refused to do that. And so they returned to Tunisia only to find that the sons had become Christian. And the mother wanted to, uh, the, the sister, Esma, wanted to kill her brothers. She literally bought the poison to kill her brother. And before she could actually do that, she came to Christ. Again, I believe her journey began with a dream. So now the mother is, is finding out that her children are Christians. And she wants to end their lives. She wants to kill them. Because this is true of many Families in Tunisia where they find that one of their children has become a Christian as they start to plan their murder. And yet, Nishet is having all of this conflict in her heart. And she's struggling with all of this. And she starts to get physically sick. And she starts to get these excruciating headaches. And so one day, she's, she's very hot. She's hot. She's her. Body temperature is just going up and up. And she goes outside and she throws up repeatedly. And then she 
comes in and she, she believes that this is the Lord moving in her life. And she has a dream. She has a vision of the Lord with holes in his hands, with holes in his feet. And she comes into the house and she prays to the Lord to save her life. And while she's praying to the Lord, there's a coffee table in front of her. And the top of the coffee table is glass. And the glass shatters. The glass just shatters in her presence. And I believe this is a means by which between the dream and the shattering of the glass, the Lord telling her that the bondage that she was under was broken. And now, of course, if you meet these people, the joy of the Lord just exudes from her. She and her kids are so solidly with the Lord. It is so encouraging. Another example, Fatten. This is the woman who opened her home to us. She had found a Bible or someone had given her a Bible, a Bible um, some years ago. She was a Muslim, practicing Muslim, and her husband also, uh, and, and their two daughters and son. And then she has a dream of the risen Christ. And the dream shakes her to her core. And so she goes back to that Bible and she starts to read it. And she understands how she needs to give her life to Christ. And she does. But she knows of no other Christians. There's no church for her to go to. There's no place to be discipled. And then by chance she learns of this group, the very group we were meeting with. And she discovers, wow, there's others like me. And she becomes part of this group and, uh, and now is, is one of the leaders in the group. The final uh, testimony I want to share with you is Amin. Amin is to the left. That is Dishla's husband. He was part of the police. He was one of the officers in the police force. And he heard about this woman. Before they were married, he heard about her. He heard that she was instrumental in the Christian community in Tunis. So he sent one of his men to investigate her. And that man that was investigating her continued investigating her. And then he had a dream. <laughs> Jesus on a cross with three men on either side of him on crosses. He was troubled by the dream. He started inquiring about the dream. He ended up getting saved. Amin calls his man back to him and says, how are we doing here? And he says, boss, I became a Christian. <laughs> Amin now is troubled and he needs to go and check this out himself. Lo and behold, he has the very same dream that his guy did. He starts to inquire about Deshla. He finds the Lord of his life and the wife of his life in Deshla. The funniest thing happened on the night that we met. We're in a meeting that looks very much like this, prayer and teaching. And Amin was coming in a little late, but he happened to see somebody going in the apartment before him. And it was the guy who was his supervisor when he was on the police force. <laughs> and so he immediately calls to us in the house and says, get ready. One of the supervisors is coming into the house. You got to get ready. You, you, you got to you put away all the stuff and this and that. And Dishla is on the other side of the phone. Or maybe it was Fatten. She says, no, no, no. Don't worry. He's saved too. 
Amin did not even know that his former boss, because he's off the force now, had gotten saved as well. And we learned that there are others in the force who are part of the church there. See, this is the thing. It's so disconnected. If the Lord was not using these visions and things, people would never, I shouldn't say never, because God is not a God of never. Um, He's a God of possibilities, endlessly so. But again, the, the things that I had to get used to, the three God surprises, the church is the first century church, not the 21st century church. The leaders can be women right now because the Lord is putting something together there. And people do get introduced to the Lord in a myriad of ways, some by the love of believers who are ministering to them and witnessing to them, but some by dreams and visions, very different than here. So we had three days of prayer and teaching and, and uh, just coming together and knowing one another, having meals together, having all things in common, just like we learn in Acts chapter 2. Acts 2.42, what Vince has the church doing, exactly, exactly what they live every day. It's that way for them every day. We baptized two people in a bathtub in that apartment. You saw the young lady. Her name is Asil. She was baptized, and then the gentleman who proposed to his fiancée baptized in that bathtub while we were there. I believe it was on the Friday night. And the joy, there, there, there's a thing they do. You know, when, when, I, when we're cheering and all that, we clap and we whistle. You know, we do that. They got this thing. It sends a chill down your spine, but it's something like... You know, they do that kind of thing like that. And they're all doing it. And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, someone's going to, you know, find out we're here. But when this little girl went down into that bathtub, there's all these women going. And it was like, whoa, welcome to the Middle East. Uh, And it was such a joyous thing to be there. And I prayed over this young lady before she went into the to the um, baptistry, shall we call it? And also the, the, the young gentleman who uh, proposed to his wife. We took communion together on Sunday, and it was so sweet. And I was so glad that we didn't have the little dried-out wafers that are common in the, in the church in, in the United States. It was a loaf of bread. And the reason why I love that loaf of bread is because it, it really... It really portrays the image of what we're celebrating. There's one Jesus, right? There's only one God and mediator, the man, Jesus Christ, right? And, and when we take communion, we're each celebrating the peace that he's given us in our heart. The Holy Spirit that's in me is the Holy Spirit that's in you. It's the Holy Spirit that is in these dear people. And so we came together and we all took a hunk off that piece of bread And it was just a beautiful moment to share this with these people. I tell you what, if you can ever have an opportunity to share communion and to share the gospel and to pray holding hands with people from another part of the world, I guarantee you it will enlarge your love for Christ and your love for people. If you love Christ, you love what he loves and he loves these people. He loves the people of the world, and I don't care what country, I don't care what they've done, I don't care how they think about us. Christ died for them, and when he puts his spirit in them, they become lovable, and it was just beautiful. And then, of course, the fellowship that we had. On the left, you see all these people holding up something. What that is, it's like a Bible stick. It's the the entire Bible in their language. 
in an MP3 format. The money donated through this church made that possible. This is just a group of them, but there were a lot of them that got it. And they were thrilled to have it. And it was just a a great time. Um, I want you to know there are future pastors there. And these are two gentlemen that I believe the Lord is going to raise up one day. The guy on the left, is his name is Ishmael. And by the way, they spell it there different than we spell it. But his name is Ishmael. But once he became a Christian, he didn't want to be known as the son of the flesh. So he changed, his name to us is Samuel, okay? This kid, every t- he's 23 years old. Every time a session ended, man, that dude pinned me to the wall with question after question after question. And the other fella over there on the, uh, on the uh, right, uh, the little red arrows pointing to him, uh, Amin Ben-Amar, this guy is, is he, I think he's going to be uh, a pastor one day. He leads a group of, of so-called intellectuals, people that are, uh, you know, from the universities and whatnot, some of which are atheists, but they come to hear what he has to say. And he's very articulate and he's very deep in his knowledge. I want to just summarize quickly uh, topics that we covered because this, this slew of things we covered was, was um, well, how can I say this? The Holy Spirit guided what we were going to do. And so in the theological foundations aspect of the teaching, the first thing we covered was the Trinity. And you see there on the right, this was a a visual that I used to help them understand this. This is one of the issues that they are most confronted with when they witness to Muslims. Because Muslims, their concept of Christianity is you people worship three gods. You're, you know, you're polytheistic. And it's because the Trinity concept doesn't exist anywhere else, not in any other religious tradition, certainly not even in nature. And so spending time on the Trinity was critical to them to see that the Father is God, but he's not the Son or the Spirit. The the Son is God, but he's not the Father nor the Spirit. The Spirit is God. He's not either the Father or the Son. He's not just a, a force. He's a person. Three personages brought together into a unity the Holy God. And this was a game breaker for them. Another game breaker for them is what theologians call the hypostatic union of Jesus Christ. The idea that he is fully God in every aspect. He is fully God, possessing every attribute of the Father and the Spirit. And yet at the same time, he is fully human. He possesses every facility and weakness of a human being, yet he remains without sin. This is another thing that the the Muslims in the area and all the other faith groups of the area think is crazy and whacked about Christianity. They cannot conceive that there is a, a personage of the Trinity, which they also don't understand, and yet that individual has not only, uh, he's not only part of a triune nature, but he himself has a dual nature. And so we went through that in great detail, and that was highly useful for them. And then, of course, we spoke in depth about the Holy Spirit, which is probably the most misunderstood personage of the uh, Holy Spirit, of the Trinity. Another teaching topic we went into, if it would come up, there we are. Oh, wait a minute. Yes, Christian life and ministry. This was uh, an interesting one for me. The first thing we tackled was living with the mind of Christ. And they were puzzled about what that means until I took them to Philippians chapter 2. And in the first 11 verses there, you get this beautiful description, again, of what theologians call the kenosis. The fact that even though Jesus is fully God, fully man, he, he 
willingly emptied himself of his godly prerogative so that he could truly live in the frailty of human flesh. And what that brings to us is that severe, severe commitment to surrender that he did for us. And how we are then called to live that same life of surrender to our fellow believers, but also to the world at large. This was a, this was a revelation to them. And then, of course, Christian marriage. And this was something Kareem specifically asked me to address. Reason being that uh, in the Muslim concept of marriage, it's very much a master-servant relationship. And, uh, and it even goes sometimes as far as being uh, property owner property. And so uh, you saw in the movie, uh, I had the husband and the, or the, the, guys, the guy who proposed to his, his fiance, and they were standing there, Kareem was in the middle translating, and I was literally laying out for them this mutuality of submission that we find in Ephesians chapter 5, and helping them understand that, you know, yes, wife, you submit to your husband, not because you are afraid of the power he exerts over you, but because it is a, an exquisite way of worshiping the Lord. I surrender to my husband as under the Lord. Because that is, that is the order he set up and my trust in him, my submission to his sovereignty says, I will come under this man that you've appointed over me. But then I turned to the guy and I said, listen, buddy, you are to love your wife as Christ loved the church. Remember, we just covered Philippians chapter 2. How did he love the church? He died for her. Are you willing to die for this woman? And so it was a great opportunity for an object lesson. I didn't know there was going to be a proposal in the middle of the meeting, okay? <laughs> then, finally, we went on the last day to eschatology. And I gave, him, gave them this diagram, and we talked to it on the top level. And my idea was we were then going to drill in to some of the details, particularly about the rapture. And I did it all in summary fashion. There's a lot there. Uh, You'll break your head on looking at it, so I won't keep it up there too long. But so we did the overview of using that diagram as our roadmap. And then then because time was running short, I told Kareem, um, okay, I have this other thing over here that we could do. This was the thing on Israel. Or we can carry on in the eschatological timeline and go into the rapture and some other things. So he said, okay, well, we'll ask the group. So he puts it to the group. He says, we can either continue on and go in depth on the points on the timeline, or um, Pastor David has this, this presentation, this teaching on Israel. Everybody in the room, immediately, Israel. We want to hear about Israel. And so I brought out this teaching on Israel. Why are they God's chosen people? This is something that the whole Islamic world stumbles upon. Why does the world hate these people? Why is it that the Muslim, all of the Muslim world hates the Jews? I took them to Psalm 83. They were stunned. They knew better than I did the modern equivalent of all the nations that are listed there in Psalm 83 that are coming together to keep Israel from becoming a nation, to keep Israel, to obliterate Israel from being a nation forevermore. Stated right there. They've heard those very words parroted out by all of the Muslim extreme groups in their world. And there it was in black and white in the word of God. Does Israel have a right to the land? 
Because all the Arab world saying, get those people out of there. That's the Palestinians' land. And yet I took them to promise after promise after prophecy of God guaranteeing that that will be their land forever. And I also took them to the scripture that says, by the way, the dimensions of the land, it's not that little pointy sliver there on the eastern coast of the Mediterranean. It's a whole lot more. And that it will be theirs forever. And that one of the great super signs of the Lord's return is the regathering of Israel into the land. And that's what you're seeing. And the reason why there's war there and will be war there until Christ returns is because Satan hates that prophecy because he knows the bell is ringing and the time is coming. And this was, this was amazing. Now, I want to I show you one thing. This blew my mind. On Thursday of this past week, uh, after we got back, we had done a, a little debrief on the, um, on the Zoom, Dan, Eva, Kareem, and myself, just to kind of get our impressions. What did you hear? What did you see? What did you think, et cetera? And then later in that day, I got a, I got a, a voice message from Kareem. He had sent the teaching on Israel to another pastor in the city of Tyre in Lebanon. And he was wondering what was going to happen. He was going to wonder, is this going to like blow up or whatever? By the way, uh, praise the Lord, uh, I had the forethought not to put my name anywhere in that document. Uh, so I want to play, it's one minute long. I want to play you the message that Kareem sent me because it blew my mind. And uh, we'll see what you think. Good morning, Pastor David. Good morning, Dr. Dan. I just finished talking with uh, our friend, our pastor in uh, Lebanon. His name is uh, Pastor Isaac. And uh, Dr. Dan knew him very well. I sent him uh, your teaching about the last session, about the, the problems, what is happening now. And I surprised that he agree about each sentence you said. I try to change, make movement among other pastors by this teaching. And they said, wow, Karim, we need Pastor David can come and teach here. I said, do you think can we teach this issue, this topic entire? He said, yes, but we will change the name of nation from uh, Israel to be Disneyland. <laughs> he said, I am so excited from this teaching. And tell Pastor David, God bless you because you change people mentality in Middle East. That's what I wanted to let you know. God bless you both. Blew my mind. By the way, I love the way he says Dr. Dan. <laughs> I want you to know um, this, this fellow, Kareem, who spoke at this church, I think, two years ago. This is an unusual saint. He is very much a modern-day Apostle Paul. He's not writing new scripture, okay? But he's taking the word of God to a place in the world that's very difficult to operate in. Everything about going to these places, it's difficult, okay? It's very risky. He's Egyptian, okay? He can't even go back to his home country. He's on a watch list. If he went back there, he would immediately be arrested. 
And yet he goes from place to place. He's the father of these people. They look to him for, for, for guidance. They look to him for discipline. They look to him for help. And he will grab any resource he can find and put it exactly where it needs to be. He is an extraordinary brother. And it was a tremendous privilege to minister alongside this guy. And I, my, my prayer is that it could continue. Dan and Eva also extraordinary extraordinarily gifted people. They are the Priscilla and Aquila of this ministry. It was the greatest day. It was a great day in this ministry some several years ago when they joined this church. And what we, we need to know, and this is where I'll conclude, in the many years that I pastored this church, I often referred to this church in comparison to the Church of Philadelphia in Revelation chapter 3. And just to solidify that that's the Lord's will for this church, I think many of you remember the very first message that Vince brought to this church back in July was Revelation chapter 3, the church in Philadelphia. And the reason why this this particular um, comparison always was impressed upon me by the Lord. I went back and looked at some of the presentations I have done on year-end meetings and servant summits, and that, that, verse was, that, that uh, passage was always there. And this is the passage here. And he's commending this church. It's not one of the big churches. It wasn't Corinth. Corinth was a huge church. It was a small church. And he says, these things says, uh, he who is holy, who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. I know your work. See, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. Ministering in the Middle East is difficult. Ministering in this country is getting more difficult. The ability to do it will only be because the Lord opens a door. I believe the Lord has opened a door for this church. Obviously, I believe that. I've bet my life on it. And so I would like to say this. uh, Please don't feel that you're not a part of this. You are a huge part of this. And I believe that the Lord will raise up some of you in in this room that you will ultimately go into other parts of the world. But I believe that the Lord has, has shown us Asia, the Middle East, and Africa, not because they're easy, but because they're hard. And he, in his wisdom, and his sovereignty, and his providence, has opened a door. I don't know how long the door will be opened. I honestly don't. But I know that as long as it's open, and there's anything that I have to give to that equation... I'm standing ready to give it. I remember back in September when we were at the pastor conference in, uh, in, in Stone Mountain. And the pa- a fellow that was on the speaker's dais, uh, at the end of his thing, he, he asked us if we, would, if we would be willing to make a commitment to the Lord that exceeded what we had done so far, that we should, while we're praying with eyes closed, raise our hands. And I raised my hand, my eyes closed. And then I raised my hand and I stood. And I stood there with my hand up. (laughs) And then when he was done praying, I closed, I opened my eyes. And I was the only one standing. (laughs) And I felt kind of foolish, you know. It's like a room of hundreds of guys and and I'm standing there. And I sat down and I said, God, I'm not sure what that all meant. But I know now what that means. 
And I know that this is something, the time is short. The time is very short. There's a billion people in the Muslim world. There's a billion four in India, most of whom don't know the word of God, don't know the Savior, don't have Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. We need to go through that open door as best we can. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, I thank you, Lord, for the time that you've given me here in this church for the last 20 years. The things that you've showed me have been great and mighty. They have been also very, very humbling. And uh, Lord, at, at the conclusion of this trip, I realized that you opened my eyes to one of the most significant experiences perhaps the most significant experience I've had as a Christian. To see what your your abilities and your plans and your methods are in the very most difficult places to bring the gospel. And it's all because you love each and every one of us image bearers of God. Lord, we lift up the nation of Tunisia. Lord, we lift up the Middle East, Africa, and Asia. Lord, we lift up Brother Kareem and Dan and Eva, Lord as they are going to these places and pouring into these places because they are in love with what you love. Lord, let that be true of each and every one of us, Lord. Thank you for bringing us back safely. Lord, speak to us loudly and often. Let us know exactly what you want from us each and every day. We pray this all in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you so much for your attention. Thank you so much.